Christianity is not a religion for the faint of heart. I think somewhere in the last hundred years, the idea has gotten around that Christianity is a weak religion, that it's a religion for women. It's a religion for men who are limp-wristed, who can't quite shake your hand. It's certainly not a religion that stands up and makes noise. We go quietly and let them tell us what to do. Now, this is not to say that Christianity's strength is not the ability to stand against those who harm you and not harm them back. There is a great strength there. But that means all the more that Christianity is not a religion for the faint of heart. You can't stand against your enemy and look him in the eye and know with certainty that you will triumph in victory over him through Jesus Christ on the last day while you tremble. Quite the opposite. Christianity is a religion of invigoration, a religion of certainty, a religion of deep conviction. And a big part of that comes by accepting a fact that you cannot change. And that is that Christianity is always a remnant. And only, always a remnant. We talked about this last week. While it is true that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, it remains a truth that not all people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Quite the opposite, wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on it. Narrow is the way, the truth, and the life, and few find it. There is always only a remnant. Now, this is then Paul's answer to the question he's been wrestling with since chapter 9 of Romans. What of the Jews then? Weren't they given the promises? Didn't they have the scripture? Shouldn't they believe? And he says, yes, some do. But not all will. And as we'll hear today, even though not all will, those who do not may yet still. And that by extension, this applies to Christianity now today. For the question today is not what happened to the Jews who were in the church who stopped believing. The question is, where did all the Christians go? And the answer remains the same. That what you see as Christianity in the world is not Christianity. Christianity is underneath it as a remnant. And so that remnant remains today as certainly as 7,000 did not bow the knee to Baal in the days of Elijah. There remains a church that Jesus is building, which is filled with the people who he is calling out of darkness and into his light. And today we are here as much as we have ever been. And the sooner we realize that nothing can stop that, nothing can change that, the more confidence we're going to have when we see the rest of the world going crazy and we know that we don't have to. That being a remnant is indeed a conviction, a certainty and a power. That there is only a remnant and that remnant is with heart. He is risen. He is risen. So let's look through some of these verses today from chapter 11 of Romans, page 946 in your pew Bible. Of course, if you've got your own Bible, that's fantastic. I highly recommend you start doing that. And whatever you're doing, consider grabbing one of those little note cards in the pew in front of you. There should be some new gel pens there as well. And make a note or two about what you find striking you today. 
had a conversation this week with someone about note taking and and uh, we, we talked about like what should we do when you're taking the notes like do you have to write down everything and there are those of you out there by the way who've got like the pages by the time we're done like god bless you uh, but I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't write down everything. When I go to a pastor's conference, I pull out a note card to listen to the sermon, and I, I don't quite doodle. I don't just draw, but I kind of let my mind follow what's being said. And if something's true and it hits me as true, I'll, I'll make a note, and then I'll kind of draw a circle around it, or I'll scribble beside it until something else strikes me. Okay, I'll make that note. That's what I encourage you to consider doing a little bit. What it is, is active listening. What it is, is hearing more than once. Think about it. So it goes in your ear and it has to go through your mind, down to your hand, back into your eyeballs, into your mind again. You get it three times if you write it down. It's a way of of ingraining the word in you. Okay, enough on that. So we're going to look at, for sure, the first six verses here of chapter 11. Uh, And we'll get to the very end of it. We're going to skip some of the stuff in the middle, which is the most complicated stuff. If you listen to the podcast uh, saved or go to the website, you can get the later sermon today. We'll we'll cover the rest of it. Uh, But verse one is that question that I keep emphasizing. He's answering. What about the Jews? Right. He, He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And by that, he means the Jewish people. Can a Jew too be saved is his question. And his answer is yes. That is, he has not rejected them by any means, he says. But then what does he mean by that? Does that mean all Jews are saved no matter what? As many evangelical Christians do believe today. Why, if you ever noticed why there are these Christian right groups that are all about holding up the nation state of Israel? They might even be called Zionists. If you dig deep enough, you find out that they'll say you have to do this as a Christian. You have to support the nation state of Israel because they are God's chosen people. And he has to put the temple back. None of that's true. But there are many Christians who believe that. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, has he rejected the Jews? No, they're all saved. He says, I'm saved. Look at it. For I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So does he mean that all Jews are saved just by being Jews? No, he said repeatedly, nobody's saved just by being born. Nobody's saved just by the blood you inherit from your father. You're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so has he rejected the Jews? No, he's rejected humanity. And he has saved humanity through Jesus so that one who believes is saved. And I, Paul, I'm a Jew and I believe. And so therefore I'm saved. So has the word of God failed? No, it's just saving in a way that we don't expect. And that gets back to this remnant talk. But the fact is God's not rejected anybody in Jesus. Not a single person on this planet is rejected in Jesus. There are people on this planet who reject Jesus and that salvation, and they will go where they want to go. But in terms of then this remnant idea, this is where he really digs into this here. And I mentioned Elijah already. He says the rest of verse two, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? 
how he appeals to God against Israel. And now here's the quote from the story of Elijah. And this is after he's had that battle with the prophets of Baal. This is after all the miracles that have taken place to him, but he's still, he can't take it anymore. He feels so alone. He feels so convinced that all of his work to preach and teach has led to no faith whatsoever. He looks at the church that he's serving, which is a whole nation state. Nonetheless, he looks at that church and he says, they're done. They're gone. It's over. Jesus, the church has failed. He asks, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Dear Jesus, I'm the only Christian that cares. Now, I, I don't know that you've had that thought just like that. Dear Jesus, I'm the only Christian that cares. But I know, I know that when you're watching the media, you feel alone. But I would contend that no matter what side of any political spectrum you're on right now, the major goal of the media is to make you feel alone. That keeps you and them tied to each other. And in fact, if you go and Google this thought sometime, mass formation psychosis, it's a way that is studied. You can use media to form the minds of large groups of people. The key to it the key to making a group of people do what you want with media tools, going all the way back to radio, is to make them isolate from each other, to make them feel alone. Because then they'll trust you like you're a god when you send your beaming messages out. So again, I know you felt alone because that's what our country feels right now. Now, double down on this, and I know when you think about the church and Christianity, and you look at the strength of Lutheranism, Goodness, God, help us in the last hundred years as we have slid into obscurity. You have to feel alone. When you talk to other Christians and you find out how many Catholics there are and how many Baptists there are and how much they really believe they've got it, and you're like, where did the Lutherans go? Dear Jesus, are we the only ones? Same answer every time. I have reserved 7,000 for myself, he says. I've kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, really important here is that doesn't mean, ha, 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 help me, help me. That doesn't mean 7,000. Now, I'm not saying, maybe it was historically, actually, to Elijah at that moment, 7,000. But that number means so much more than just a, oh, it just happened to be 7,000. That number is the number seven, which is the first number introduced in the Bible as a substantive number. That is, on the seventh day, he rested and he declared it to be holy. And so that number seven itself, by virtue of the week built into creation, is holy. So first off, this number is holy. And then you have the number of ten. The number ten, like the Ten Commandments, the complete and total natural law that God has designed our world and our humanity to live with. And so as you know, 10 is to this day a number of completion. If you score a perfect 10, that means something. So here we have 7 and we have 10. That'd be 70. But now we're going to cube the darn thing, right? 7,000. 10 times 10 times 10. And although it's a little tougher to prove this one from the Bible directly, the number 3 is pretty obviously what makes a trinity a trinity. So 7,000 not bowing is a holy and complete number of God's people. It's the exact right amount at the exact right time, exactly as God wants it to be. It's exactly like the number 144,000 
in the book of Revelation. I won't, I'll spare you all the, the way you get there then, but it's the same meaning that the remnant that exists, exists because God wants it to, and there's nothing anybody can do about it because he's going to do it. And so here's Elijah saying, God, why is it like this? It should be better. How come it isn't more like this? He's like, I'm in charge, Elijah. I got it. And don't you believe? Well, yeah, I believe. So why are you complaining? Isn't it good? Isn't it great? He is risen. Hallelujah. I have reserved 7,000 for myself. Now, really, you want to take this today and apply it to yourself. It means he's reserved you. God has reserved you for himself. That was his choice. That's his doing. It's his promise. It's his good spell, right? The gospel It's his good news. Verse 5, Paul emphasizes this. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Yeah? There will always be a remnant, and they will always be chosen by grace. And grace has been the subject of the entire book. It's a few chapters back now that the whole talk about grace versus works has happened. But he's going to throw back to it with verse 6 and emphasize it again. If it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. That is, if God's going to save you, it's not about what you do. It's about what he does. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That seems obvious if you know what grace is. Grace is a gift. Right? Works is not a gift. Works is something you do to earn something. Uh, it seems obvious. I know there's a lot of debate about that in the Christian church still, uh, but it's right there. It's right there. Grace is what makes you a believer. So now believe that being in the remnant is good, not bad. And if many go off to destruction, that's actually on them. And you say, but what about the people I care about? I know, it's rough. Paul's been talking about this this whole time. He would throw himself away if he could make his brothers believe. But he can't. He's not the Savior. The Savior is the one who creates belief, and so long as they reject him, it's on them again. Let's jump ahead now. We're going to skip a little bit. Jump up to verse 16. Kind of a weird verse, but really imperative for understanding how much this little remnant that God is saving is still good for all. Nobody is rejected before they die. Everyone has a chance. Chance. It's kind of the wrong language. Everyone is still in play to believe because of this fact, right? Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, the idea of root and branches you can apply to Jesus and us, and that, that would be a way to take this. But the deeper meaning of the verse as he's delivering it is that specifically, the Jewish people can still believe because there are Christians who are Jewish who believe, and actually ultimately because Christ is there. So also then today, because there are Christians on this earth, all humanity is holy in God's sight. If there were no Christians on this earth, all of humanity would be profane. But there are Christians. And so because there are a few, then all are spared the total wrath of God. I mean, what does that mean? Specifically, let's apply that to Rockford. It means that while you are here, Christians praying in Rockford, Rockford gets answered prayers. And it benefits everybody, even those who don't believe. 
While you are Christians here praying in Rockford for the salvation of others, their salvation is possible. If you were not here to do those things, then no one would be asking God for blessings and only wrath would be coming and nobody would have a chance to hear, believe, and be saved. So because Christians exist, the entire world is blessed. Yes? And then embrace that as the meaning of the remnant. For the day that the remnant is gone, the day that they kill the last Christian, I mean, that's the end of the world right there. Don't don't get too narrow on me with how you heard that, but follow the, the concept. Without Christianity, there's no reason for God to have mercy. In Christianity, if only 10 men remain in the city, will you destroy the city? No, for 10 men, it will not destroy the city. The remnant, the remnant is of deep value in God's sight. Verse 17 follows. Now he's getting into some warnings here. But if some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Now, the thrust here specifically for Paul writing to Gentile Christians is to not be arrogant toward Jews who don't believe. That's the very narrow, the very specific, because they were broken off again. They had the promises, they had the scriptures, they had the covenants, they rejected Jesus, they're cut off. They're thrown into the fire, although until they die, they're not in the fire. But they're thrown toward that fire, and you, repenting, believing, having come from a family perhaps that had no understanding of this, and yet you've been brought into the faith, you are now one with Christ. He is the vine, you are the branches. In him you can live forever. So what's the result? Is it arrogance toward the unbeliever? And the answer is by no means. Because you must know that you were not grafted in because of how great you were but because of how good the one who tends the field is, how good Jesus is, how amazing he is, that he walked by and saw you, a wild olive shoot, doing no good, likely to die right where you were, but he took you and he put you onto a tree where you're going to blossom for all eternity. So again, the result is not arrogance toward the unbelievers. How dare they? But mercy toward the unbelievers. See how confused they are? See how without hope they are. Even as you hear about, have you heard about this James Revenge group? They're the ones doing a lot of the the vandalism on the crisis pregnancy centers and the the churches. James Revenge. Uh, As you see them, if you ever see them, the rage and the anger that they're having, and they go to these protests and they yell and they shout, they're so upset. It's very easy to get upset back. It's very easy to say, look how evil they are. And indeed they are. But again, what do you do? Respond to the rage with rage? Or can you begin to see how that is just a person who needs Jesus? They need Jesus as much as anybody else on this planet. And though they may never choose Jesus, though they may never believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean you get to decide to be the judge. It means you, again, lift up your heart in praise to God. Thank him for what he's done for you. Ask him for the ability to confess that with boldness. Ask him to take away the fear of your neighbor, the fear of speaking, the fear of shame, the fear of isolation. Ask him to show you in your heart what it means to have peace with God. So that again, you can be bold with conviction, even in the face of those who are filled with hate. 
Verse 20b is toward the end. Same idea. I'm just going to repeat it. So do not become proud, but fear, he says. The idea here is to recognize that if you become proud and of yourself, that is the way to cut yourself off from Christ. This is kind of a rough idea. Not all Christians today want to believe this. On the one hand, you got Calvinists who want to think that there's this perseverance of the saints idea. It means that you've been elect from salvation from from uh, from eternity, which we do believe, and so therefore you can't fall away, which which we don't believe. And on the other side, you have the once saved, always saved people. They say you got to make a decision for Jesus, and once you do, once you're saved, you're always saved. Again, that's not what it says here, right? It says, "Do not be proud, but fear." Why do you have to fear? Um, uh, because verse twenty-one: If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Uh, so to to cut yourself off from Christ is possible. It's possible. You can do it. You can stop believing. How? Pride. Deciding you don't need help. Deciding you're better than everybody else. Not seeing that by grace you have been saved. And so grace is what we are. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. I mean, I I couldn't talk about the doctrine of election better. The kindness of God and the severity of God. Kindness toward you, he says, by the way, in the rest of verse 22. Notice the difference when when he's talking about those who are going to be cursed, severity toward those who are fallen. It's in the third person. He doesn't say severity toward you if you fall away. He says severity toward the fallen. But then when he talks about the gospel, when he talks about the goodness of God, he says you. That's how election works. We can talk about election. We can talk about the damned. We can talk about God's eternal plan. But really what it's about is right now, this day, this moment, God promises you. God chooses you. God has saved you. Jesus loves you. In this, though, note the kindness of God. Did you deserve this? No. What were you born as? Just a sinner? Is that, is that just like a little dirt on the outside of your body? It's a complete and rot, rotten corruption. It is a total destruction of the heart. I was reading a book yesterday about childhood and parenting. And it was going into detail about uh, how, let's see if I can remember this just from yesterday, about how small children, two years old, three years old, that our society has come to believe that they're, they're not, they're not bad, they're good. And so if you just never tell them no and let them do what they want, they're just gonna, they're gonna be better that way. And then he listed all these psychological studies, all of this actual science about what happens to a two-year-old you don't say no to. And you know what they do? They start to bully you. They're that smart at two that they can manipulate the entire situation to control you. Now, I bring this up to point out, look how evil we are. Even when you're two, you know how to dominate people to get what you want. You know how to scream and yell, if only it will get you. You know how to use violence, if only it will get you what you want. Hmm? So again, kindness toward you is an amazing thing from God. But his severity toward the unbeliever, that's something that we don't get to push aside because he's kind. Oh, God's a God of love, so there is no hell. And that's nonsense. 
God is a God of justice. He's the just one who justifies the ungodly. He does that in Jesus. He does that as a promise. He rejoices in heaven more than anything else over one sinner who repents. But those who will not turn from their wicked ways, who are obstinate in their unbelief, they're obstinate in their unbelief in grace. The very thing they don't believe in is grace. The very thing he wants to give so much. All right. Rest of verse 22 does finish, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I don't want to harp on that. But again, it's pretty clear you can fall away. It's possible. It's possible. The promise is that you won't. The gospel is that you won't. But the threat is that you can. So what do you do? Well, ask Jesus not to let you. And the promise is that you won't. The reason that text is there is to keep you in fear so that you'll keep hearing how good he is when he says, I've got you. I've got you. All right, verse 23 says, And even if they, this is the Jews, do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. This is not specifically about once you've fallen away, whether you can believe again, but it does apply to that. So don't lose hope for anybody. If Caiaphas can reject Jesus, And then later come to faith in Jesus. I don't know that he did. I'm just saying he can because that's what Paul says here. Paul's a good example. If Saul of Tarsus can reject Jesus face to face and then come to faith in Jesus, then anybody can come to faith in Jesus. God has the power to save and he will. So don't give up. Don't despair. Skip ahead to verse 30. Second column there. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So in the narrow, the Jews rejected Jesus so that he could save the entire world. God let that happen so that mercy could come to you. So also now, everybody else that's rejecting Jesus, the reason they're out there is to be saved by Jesus through us who preach that mercy, to show them mercy. They are not disobedient so that they might be damned. There is no plan to damn for all, all eternity. That's not what he's been planning from the beginning. What he's been planning is to save. And so even those right now descended from Adam, leaving their lives of wickedness, they're allowed to do that so that the word of God may come and choose the remnant from amongst them. If he didn't want to do that, they'd be dead already. If he didn't want to save mankind, we'd be burned already. I want to make sure I'm not misheard. I did not just say there is no eternal hell. There is an eternal hell. What I said is that that has not been Jesus' eternal plan. He didn't decide, hey, you know what? I'd like to have mercy on some people, but to do that, I'm going to have to have some people who I don't have mercy on. So since I want to have mercy, I'll create some just to damn them. He didn't do that. And by by the way, Calvinism teaches that directly, that that's what happened. He didn't do that. What he did was he created people to be good to. And then even when we weren't, he said, I'm going to be good anyway. And so I will consign you all to disobedience so that I might get into the midst of it and kill it for you, take it in myself, bury it in my grave, and rise from the dead. Yes? Verse 30 to 32 again. Um, Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The mystery of elections and a mystery. 
Mercy in all doesn't mean all are going to be saved, but there is mercy for all. And we've all been consigned to deal with our sins so that that mercy for all can come to you. Come to you. You don't get to create a theory about who's saved, who's not, but you get to hear that you are. And then again, the remnant gets to have conviction in this. This isn't a question whether or not we're Christian. It's not a question whether or not he is risen. It is a certainty. A certainty that then leads Paul to explode here in this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This is, he says, I can't understand it. If you're sitting here trying to understand it, you're going to fail. But rejoice that God's that big and that good. And recognize that his wisdom is all powerful and all giving. And praise it. How unsearchable are his judgments. That's good. How inscrutable his ways. That's good. That means he's God. That means he's almighty and omnipotent and all-powerful. And then he quotes the Old Testament in order to prove these points again, that we don't get to seek inside the hidden mind of God. You get to hear what God says to you, surely. But what is inside the hidden mind of God? That's up to him who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor. Like he doesn't come along and ask you, hey, what should I do? Hey, you know, church, I'm not sure what to do. What do you tell me? He says, ask me for what you want. I love you. I'll give it to you. But he doesn't need our counsel. We need his counsel. Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? We're back to works and grace there again, right? Oh, God, if, you, if I do this, if you do this, then I'll do that. Or right? these bargaining things with God, it doesn't work. It's not real. That's not faith. That's doubt. Huh? The mercy of God, again, is what he is all about. Verse 36, from him to him. Through him, to him, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the end of the doxology. I'm going to read two more verses here to lead us into next week, though, because the result of all of this, three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, all of this is leading toward chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, notice the therefore, based on everything I said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, not by your works, by what you know about God being good, now present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. He says, now recognize you've been bought, you've been paid for, you belong to Jesus. He's your master now and present your body, yourself, mind and soul to him. When you present yourself to him, this is true worship. And now he's going to tell you how. It's not about singing songs. Look at the next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are you going to be transformed? How are you not going to be like this world? Rest of the verse, by the renewal of your mind by knowing what the Bible says, by knowing the difference between wisdom and foolishness, by knowing the difference between Jesus and Baal or whatever other God you want to throw in there. Be transformed by the renewal, the regeneration, the awakening of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It doesn't mean now you got to get busy doing your works, other Jesus doesn't love you. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that. It means because Jesus loves you, stand up. Put your shoulders back. Let your eyes look out. Pick up your Bible and read a psalm and believe it's true. Especially when you feel like you're isolated and alone. And the land and the country and the planet you're living on has no hope. Lift up your head. Don't wallow in the muck. As if Jesus isn't your God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.